We are keeping democracy alive. Bert Cohen here. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans in the South. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're only seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Well, there's a voice, Lyndon Baines Johnson, who certainly understood the power of people in the streets. He got it. And uh, most people in government actually do. I know most people uh, these days think, ah, we don't have power but we do. Making noise can make it happen. And having been born in the wonderful year of 1950, I can assure you it was a great <coughs> privilege to have been in the thick of it in those late 60s and early 70s. Of course, there was the music, which lives on with us and with the kids today. But there was also the incredible optimism and enthusiasm that in our radical politics, a better world, a more peaceful and just America was being born. And we were at the vanguard of creating it. Those were indeed heady times. We were kids of the 50s, patriots who believed in the promise of America, that we would always be on the side of the little country fighting for its independence from colonial masters. Then came the shock of Vietnam uh, when America tried to become itself the colonial master. Our government's policies were an assault on our deeply felt patriotism, and as patriots, we had to fight back. So what happened to the American left after those hopeful, exuberant 60s? Sure, the wind kind of went out of our sails with the frankly stupid and incredibly counterproductive bombings by the weather underground, and that may have caused us to pause and reflect, but it in no way ended our dedication to political as well as cultural change. Far too many people in the early 2000s accepted our own sense of powerlessness. And somehow most people believed that demonstrations and direct actions didn't accomplish anything. That is an incorrect belief, of course. There's an important new book called Direct Action, Protest and the Reinvention of American Radicalism by our guest today, L.A. Kaufman. L.A., thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. This book, Direct Action, examines how movements from ACT UP to Occupy Wall Street to Black Lives Matter have used intentionally disruptive tactics to catalyze change against long odds, creating a new kind of decentralized and multi-voiced successful radical radical politics in the process. I got to tell you a little bit about our guest today, author of uh, uh, Direct Action. L.A. Kaufman has spent more than 30 years immersed in radical movements as a journalist, historian, organizer, and strategist. Her writings on grassroots activism and social movement history 
have been published in The Nation, The Progressive, Mother Jones, The Village Voice, and many other outlets. She served as executive editor for the radical theory journal Socialist Review and as an award-winning national political columnist for San Francisco Weekly, focusing on dissent and activism. Well, there are a fair number of books on the 60s movements. What was your purpose in writing this book? What need does it address that has not been adequately addressed? Well, we really don't have histories of what happened after the 60s. We have whole bookshelves about the 60s, and there's plenty to study there, and certainly many important lessons to be drawn. Um, But as someone who came of age after that period of time, I first became politically active as a high school student in the first years of, of Ronald Reagan's first term. Um, in the very early 1980s, um, you know, subsequent generations came of age with this big shadow of the 60s hanging over us with the sense that what, what was there left for us to accomplish? What, um, what political projects um, might we tackle? Uh, there was a way in which the myths of the 60s loomed so large, it was very hard to, to, to get a, a sense of what was happening on the ground um, in subsequent decades. And by about the early 90s, after I had already been politically active for more than a decade at that point, I started really sensing some major shifts in the character and the structure of grassroots radical movements. And um, that's actually when I began this book, the book uh, I worked on off and on for 25 years. I can um, relate. Um, it's a little ridiculous, but uh, uh, <laughs> it, it means that I, I really thought very deeply about these questions about um, what's the nature of um, progressive political organizing, what can we accomplish, and how especially can we win in these times uh, that don't feel as expansive and hopeful when we feel mm-hmm. that we're fighting an uphill battle, uh, as we so often do. Uh, yes, people often have given up way too easily and, and have... You know, it's it's the easiest thing to do is to not learn the lessons of history, to not learn what actually works. And I know there are quite a few people on the left who are not used to winning. You know, it's they're, they're used to feeling somewhat uh, martyred that uh, we tried and we lost. But I can tell you, it's much better to win. It really, really is. <laughs> And I, I got to tell the listeners a little bit more about our guest, L.A. Kaufman. She was a central strategist of the two-year direct action campaign that saved more than 100 New York City community gardens from bulldozing in 1999. I love this. She masterminded the campaign's most notorious action, the release of 10,000 crickets in one police plaza during a city land auction. That was brilliant. Uh, <laughs> it's stuff like that. It certainly brought that land auction to a halt. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you, as you know, so much politics is theater. And our, our guest served as street tactician, direct action trainer, movement analyst during the turn of the millennium global justice movement. And her widely cited free radical column chronicled the movement's upsurge uh, and post 9-11 uh, collapse. When, when people hear the phrase direct action, I, I think most people really don't understand what that means. How would you define direct action? I mean, it's very different from, you know, violence, uh, which is obviously a form of direct action, but, 
But but for somebody who didn't know what the term direct action meant or its context, how would you define direct action? Right. I define it as the whole collection of pressure tactics, tactics and approaches that people can use that are outside the established mechanisms of political participation and influence. Um, you know, we have the right to vote. We have um, the ability to follow up with our elected officials by sending them letters or making phone calls, by lobbying them in person. Um, we have you know, the ability to testify before various kinds of legislative bodies. There are all kinds of authorized ways in which we can participate in the political process. But as we know, often um, there are times when those avenues of participation are blocked or unresponsive. Yeah. And there's a whole array of different kinds of protest tactics that people use to try to leverage their collective power outside of those established mechanisms. And um, that, to me, is the, is the broadest definition mm -hmm. of direct action. Um, though it usually, the, the, the kind that I'm most interested in is um, uh, the kind that is, um, that is bold, um, that is... Um, uh, and that creates a crisis for those in power. Ah. The, 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 the basic theory of change behind most direct action organizing is that through your example and your protest, you create a dilemma, you create a crisis for those who have the power to make the decision that you want, um, and um, you hope to make it easier for them to make the change you want than for them to hold on to their current position. Uh, that's it reminds me of, of a wonderful quote attributed to Franklin Delano Roosevelt, uh, of course, when he was president. And A. Philip Randolph, I'm sure you know this story, uh, was, was head of the Pullman Porters Union, a largely black union for the Pullman Porter cars. And he was, of course, this is in the late 1930s, I believe. He wanted some integration, some fairness for, for black Americans. And FDR said to him something like this. I don't know the exact words. I'm with you. I want it to happen. I agree with you. Now go out there and make me do it. Mm -hmm. And I, I think what he meant by that is exactly what you're talking about. Uh, creating a crisis for those in power and making it easy for them to do it. I know so many uh, people in government who they need to see that there's public support before they do anything. Just to vote just a letter to the editor. I mean, they're not nothing. They're something. But this is a kind of direct action. There's a long history of it from Gandhi with the SALT demonstration, Martin Luther King. Uh, it, it, it can really make a difference. And one of the, the things that you bring to this discussion is that you've not only been an activist, you've also done a fair amount of scholarship over the last three decades as a journalist, historian, organizer, and strategist. How does your gathered knowledge inform your prescriptions as to decision-making as to when to employ direct action. You know, it's kind of a, a, an important decision when direct action is appropriate. So t tell us about your prescriptions as to decision-making as to when to employ direct action. Right. Well, it, you know, decisions about what tactics to use and how exactly to unroll a campaign are always contextual and depend on what the goals of the campaign are, how much support you already have, um, what levers of power you're, you're, you're looking to, um, to, to pressure. Um, so it's hard to make a general 
rule. The, mm-hmm. I mean, in, in most cases, when you're doing an organizing campaign, you're going to start out with things um, that are fairly um, mild. Um, you're going to be doing a lot of outreach and talking to people and trying to build your base of support. Um, but you do often, movements often benefit from taking dramatic action um, that, that uh, you know, galvanizes supporters and, and draws attention um, early on. Sometimes the, the, the tactics that our movements use um, may seem like they're um, unnecessarily polarizing and they're driving people away. Uh-huh, um, right, right. But the force of example can also galvanize people and rally people to your side. Um, uh, that the, the community garden campaign that you that you mentioned, uh, we got our first big publicity um, lift and our first really big um, uh, jump in support after uh, I was uh, uh, coordinating people to send uh, thousands of protest faxes to the Chamber of Commerce mm-hmm. because they were sponsoring the plan to bulldoze community gardens. Ah. And they had the NYPD come and arrest me in my apartment oh my. in Midtown Manhattan. Um, which uh, you know made people very angry and got us a, a huge amount of support. Uh, um, uh, um, good work. You know, sometimes, sometimes <laughs> when, um, sometimes it takes you know a dramatic action right. to kind of Absolutely. spark a campaign and get get broad interest early on. Um, but you know you have to you have to think about um, um, how you're going to slowly build pressure over time um, if you really want to. Uh, you know, construct a campaign that's not just a single action, but that actually leads to a, a policy change. Yeah, that must take a lot of thought and consideration. There's quite a bit of that uh, throughout history. And, you know, some people, I, I think when people these days think of direct action, perhaps the first thing they think of is relatively recent, the Occupy Wall Street movement. And I've heard people say, well, what did that accomplish? It, it, they didn't, you know, win particularly, uh, it just seems to have faded away. I'm suspecting you see it rather differently. I do. Um, I mean, Occupy was a very funny political creature. It didn't look like a lot of other protest movements. Um, in particular, um, the organizers in, in New York, and then this, this practice was followed at many of the other encampments around the country, um, very uh, deliberately refused to narrow themselves down to any specific uh-huh. goals or objectives, um, which in some ways seems like a very peculiar way to set up your movement. However, um, the, the, here's a movement, but what is it for? It won't right. say. It doesn't right. want to specify. Um, but what, what people in Occupy were doing um, really was trying to open up political space, um, which, you know, that, that's a metaphor, but it's a very powerful one. Um, Occupy helped launch a set of political conversations and created a space for dreaming that um, could be very exasperating to be part of if you're someone who's more pragmatically inclined and looking for results and wanting to know, you know, when's the next action and what's it going to win. Um, but it spoke to a really very deep longing among many people for, um, for a, a kind of political space where people could discuss their, their deepest fears and dreams and a place where people could dream together about what a di- very different society might look like. Um, so, you know, in, in, in its own terms, it, it could be hard to evaluate. Well, what, how can you say what it accomplished when it didn't have goals? 
But if you take a somewhat longer view, um, which we obviously, we only have you know, about five years of perspective, six years of perspective on, what, on, on Occupy. We don't have decades right. um, of time now to look back at it. But already it's clear that that, um, that initiative really did open up political space, and it catalyzed a whole bunch of new political projects, some of them very, very pragmatic, mm-hmm. um, strike debt, um, and the Rolling Jubilee, which have tackled questions of student debt and have gotten debt relief for a um, large number of people who had been defrauded by for-profit universities. Right. Um, uh, Occupy Sandy, which did incredible relief work after Hurricane Sandy mm. hit the East Coast, um, managed to accomplish much more than the Red Cross for a fraction of the money huh. um, and in a fraction of the time. Um, Occupy Our Homes, which is an initiative that that has uh, successfully fought foreclosures in many cities around the country, including in Minneapolis. Um, And there are other lines of influence as well. There are very um, clear and strong lines of influence from Occupy to Black Lives Matter, for instance. Um, And um, lines of influence from Occupy to the the Dakota Access Pipeline protests. Um, So there's this way in which Occupy... Um, you know, could be a very frustrating um, experience to be a part of if you were looking for immediate results right. and a pragmatic program. Hmm. But in the long run, I think it helped um, really turn the tide and start this wave of organizing that right now is um, finding expression in the remarkably varied, sprawling, and so far pretty effective resistance. To Donald Trump. Absolutely. Uh, you said so many things there that are, are good to discuss. If you just tuned in, dear listener, Bert Cohen here on Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is L.A. Kaufman, author of the new book, Direct Action, Protest and the Reinvention of American Radicalism. I think it's so fascinating to, with specifically Occupy Wall Street, to not have specific goals to, as they say, and it's so in the box now, they thought outside the box, but it, it now everybody understands 1% versus 99%. That's absolutely, it's practically universal, I think, and, and that, that's a huge accomplishment. Uh, Bernie Sanders certainly talked in that language. Uh, even Hillary Clinton did a little bit as much as she had to. Uh, and it, it just seems to me that uh, changing the conversation is a big deal. One of the problems I find with kids these days <clears throat> is uh, expecting uh, uh, instant gratification. We, we, you know, everything's so quick with the, with the Internet and all that uh, instant gratification. Well, that is not how history works, as you obviously know, L.A. To make changes, it takes consistent effort, a lot of heavy lifting, and it works. It does work. I mean, how long did it take us to end the war in Vietnam? A long time. A lot of demonstrations, a lot of actions. Did it work? Hell yes, it did. And I'm very proud of that. And, uh, well, which makes me think about uh, the something that, that you write about, the remarkable yet largely forgotten May Day 1971 anti-war action, which I participated in. It was quite wonderful. Uh, 
uh, and and I felt good about that. What, what what was how did that May Day '71 anti-war action change the course of activist history in this country? And what was novel about its organizing plan? Yeah, May Day '71 was this crazy protest that almost nobody has ever heard of, um, but it's no. the largest civil disobedience protest in U.S. history. More than seven thousand people were arrested in a single day, um, largely because the the U.S. government um, basically brought in the military to sweep them all off the streets. Now, I was one, um, and it was an attempt um, after you had you had invoked the Weather Underground earlier. After some years where some people, in their frustration with the continuing um, conduct of the of the U.S. war in South Asia um, had turned to violence on the U.S. left, and May Day '71 was was a, a really definitive re-embrace of nonviolence, um, but of a um, very scrappy, confrontational, disruptive nonviolence. Um, so they decided to try to shut down the federal government through nonviolent blockades. Yes, uh, which is you know an incredibly ambitious goal. Um, and, and was kind of a hyperbolic one. They were really looking to shut down Washington, D.C., which is, of course, not quite the same thing as shutting down the government as a whole. Um, but they managed with, uh, you know, what is a pretty modest number of people, maybe about, there were about 25,000 people on the streets, um, you know, which is a fraction, for instance, right. of uh, the crowds that came to the women's marches, uh, the oh, women's yeah. march in, in January, um, so with a relatively modest number of people, um, but, you know, a lot of willingness to take risks, they um, blockaded streets and intersections and bridges all around Washington, D.C. Um, the city was so gridlocked, three members of Congress ended up having to take up a canoe to get to Capitol Hill, oh, a no canoe kidding. across the Potomac to get right. there. Um, <laughs> and it was um, this uh, uh, attempt to not uh, just try to stop the war, but, but to, to um, go about the process of organizing it in a new way and right. to move beyond the models of protests that were based on having uh, either one or a very small number of leaders, usually men, usually white men, yes. um, and a large passive crowd of followers. The idea behind May Day 71 was that people instead would organize themselves um, in these groups called affinity groups. Yes, they would indeed. choose their target, uh, what air, what part of the city they were going to try to disrupt, and they were supposed to organize themselves, not wait for movement generals or leaders to tell them how to organize it or what tactics to use or what approach to use or who to come with them. Um, they were supposed to make it happen themselves. And that, that model for a decentralized direct action mobilization became the dominant model for a whole series of protests in um, subsequent decades, um, including um, the dramatic blockade of the Seattle WTO mm -hmm. meetings in 1999. Um, it's a model that was used by Occupy and many other movements. Um, and, and the striking thing about the May Day protest, it was, it was a enormously unpopular at the time. It was, it was denounced by people right. um, all across the political spectrum, including many on the left. Mm -hmm. um, but when you look very closely at the Nixon administration um, and its decision-making around the war, there's a very compelling case to be made that it worked, that it actually so unnerved the Nixon administration, it, that shutdown of D.C. 
felt so much like revolution on their doorstep. Yes. Um, and there was something, I think, especially unnerving about its nonviolence, about the fact that it couldn't be readily written off as, you know, an armed insurrection, that this mm. these were people nonviolently taking great risks in order to um, to try to obstruct the further conduct of the war. Um, and it, it, it really rattled Nixon and was one of the things that convinced him that it was time to begin taking steps to, to, to end the hated war. Yeah, I feel pretty good about being part of that, I must say. I got arrested really early when somebody said, walk, don't run. Well, I wish I had run because a cop grabbed me and threw me in a van, an unmarked van. It was tons of illegal arrests. But the Nixon administration absolutely was rattled. They didn't know what was going on. Without you know a centralized uh, leader and decision-making, it was it, it, it very much rattled them. The, the White House... I'm not sure if it was at that time or later than that when the White House itself was ringed with buses, bumper to bumper, and inside the ring of buses were troops, military troops ready to, because <laughs> they thought it was some armed insurrection. I'm not sure if it was that demonstration or another one that they did that from, but uh, that's all they knew. And if you can be creative, I think that's the one of the keys here is being creative and, and doing, uh, you know, Direct action, nonviolence, absolutely uh, can make a difference. So, uh, right, I mean, to create that sense that they were only able to continue, it, you know, it, it kind of gave the feeling they could only continue in governance at the point of a gun, which yeah. is, you know, uh, a very delegitimizing move. Absolutely. Um, uh, and, and certainly, I think uh, those of us who are interested in undermining the legitimacy of the current administration yes. um, can look back at that 71 protest and its boldness and um, have some, you know, some creative juices start flowing about some of the ways that we might be leveraging our collective power in the coming year or two. Yeah, that's true. And certainly uh, Trump has very successfully united the country against him. And a lot of people who have not been involved before are, you know, scared and angry. And I think, you know, there's there's a lot of electric charge out there, and now, you know, putting that to use somehow. And I can't help but think that this book, Direct Action, and, and the history of it, uh, can... We need to learn from history. I mean, I don't know why so many people have an aversion to learning from history. I remember back in the late 60s, I don't think anybody really knew about the 1930s, the labor struggles, the socialist movement, uh, anti-fascists uh, in the Spanish Civil War. Uh, but we didn't. It would be helpful to learn about that history, and and this goes goes through it. A lot of it, like, I mean, I wonder. You know, you talked about Black Lives Matter and the Occupy movement, and I I wonder about there was something as you write about called the Clamshell Alliance, which strikes close to home as well. Having been arrested at the Seabrook nuclear construction site myself, along with many others, how have these influences passed from movement? To movement, and a lot of it is uh, Quaker influenced. Yeah, absolutely. People tend to to look at um, these movements that have a different issue focus and think right. of them as being utterly separate. If you're looking at them from afar, you might not. Good you point. Know, you might not think that there would be historical continuities between um, the anti nuclear movement of the '70s, which was about as white as a movement could be, and the Black Lives Matter movement um, decades later. Um, but but in fact. There's, um, there's all kinds of ways in which 
um, both in organizing practices, but then also just through the people of organizers. Um, there are these deep connections between movements and, and traditions and forms of organizing. They get passed on from movement to movement, um, most often by women. Women have played, women organizers have played this role disproportionately. They're not the only ones, but it's, it's been mostly women. Um, uh, Quakers, as you said, uh, played a, an important role um, in instituting some of the, the decision-making practices that, that groups have right. adopted as um, in, in the search for more profoundly democratic and participatory um, internal structures. Yes. Um, and also um, just some of the, a lot of the nuts and bolts knowledge of, how, you know, how do you organize blockade? What kind of support and infrastructure do you need? Um, and, uh, you know, as, as the, these, these practices have gotten passed on from, um, from movement to movement, um, you know, so in many cases have, have the, the fundamental lessons. And the, the fundamental lesson, of course, um, the big takeaway is that this kind of protest typically works. It doesn't always work. But right. There's a reason why people have turned to these techniques of nonviolent direct action over and over again. Um, with the anti-nuclear movement, um, you know, you can look at that the Seabrook movement. That particular nuclear power plant was eventually built, but it was decades before it was. Yes. And um, the, the struggle to resist the licensing of that plant um, also led to the cancellation of more than 100 other planned nuclear plants. Mm-hmm. You know, so sometimes you lose the immediate battle that you're working on, but you win the larger war Absolutely. when you use these kinds of techniques of, of resistance. Absolutely. And I, I think, I mean, not only there were supposed to be two nuclear plants there uh, <laughs> at a cost of less than $1 billion for the two, and it ended up being one nuclear plant at a cost of about $10 billion. That was that was just unrelated to, to the protests, but it just, I- even the utility now, I think, recognizes it was a mistake. And this encouraged people. You know, okay, did it stop it? No. But it encouraged people. It. There's no question that people realized, hey, you know what? We're not powerless. We can do something. The idea of participating in self-government, which is, I think, what a lot of our founders intended, uh, was, was revitalized by that. And it was interesting. One of the things about uh, related... The Boston, I was in the Boston clamshell and, you know, a string directly to May Day uh, that there were uh, disruptors disrupting us. Uh, for example, it seemed pretty clear to me in, in the uh, Boston clamshell that sometimes so-called socialist and communist participants disrupted and blocked consensus. They were really agent provocateur. They were from the FBI. Who knows where else? Uh, same thing. At May Day 71, uh, they were pretty obvious, the, the provocateurs. Uh, there were some men, I remember, urging us to throw rocks at the police. The women agents had freshly pressed bell bottoms that were too short. <laughs> but you could tell. Your research reveals how movements can adapt to fears of FBI surveillance. Tell us more about that, please. That, that's an interesting uh, topic because it's real. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, <clears throat> there's been infiltr- infiltration has been part of our movements. Oh, forever. Um, forever. Uh, a story just came out um, today about, or I guess the story broke yesterday, that the NYPD had managed to infiltrate Black Lives Matter so 
thoroughly during um, the Eric Garner protests in uh, late uh, 2015 that they were actually on the text messaging loop with a handful of core organizers. They had managed to get in that. Wow. Hmm. Um, so these kinds of techniques is not in the past. Um, you know, we, right. we can look back because we have, um, you know, have had uh, Freedom Information Act requests and other kinds of, um, you know, processes of discovery through lawsuits where we have more evidence about what happened um, in the movements uh, uh, of the past than we do in the present. But it's a, it's a perennial problem that, the, that the, the government is going to use the means, whatever means it has, at its disposal to try to disrupt um, and destabilize our movements, and um, and how uh, movements have had to think very hard about well, how do you deal with that reality and not let it make you paranoid, which is what they want, um, and not let not um, lead you to um, begin, you know. Uh, uh, you know, pointing fingers indiscriminately and calling this one that you don't uh. like a spy and that one that you don't like an agent. You know, um, there's all kinds of ways in which the suspicion can be um, more corrosive than the actual infiltration. Um, so what can be done? And I think that what most movements have found is that the best counter, uh, the, the best way to counteract um, these, the, these kinds of measures is through openness, is through doing things openly so that you don't really have anything to hide. Um, that was the the kind of great magic of the Seattle WTO blockade was the whole thing was planned right out in the open. When Seattle's police chief police chief said he was taken by surprise that people shut down the WTO, people just had to scratch their heads because it was done. Uh-huh. The planning was done in an open meeting where you could look at the chart on the wall and you could say, "Okay, I'm going to volunteer to work on blocking that sector of, <laughs> of the city." You know, it was completely done in the open. It wasn't. Um, it wasn't secret, sneaky plans the way that some blockades <laughs> are. Um, and, uh, you know, it was just the sheer force of popular power that they couldn't stop. Uh, and so they, uh-huh. they blamed it on lack of information. <laughs> the force of popular power. Mm, interesting. Something to keep in mind. The Force of Popular Power. Again, Bert Cohen here. We're talking with L.A. Kaufman, author of the brand new book, Direct Action, Protest, and the Reinvention of American Radicalism. And actually, this show had been scheduled for uh, a couple weeks ago. You were doing something very interesting at the time and had to uh, postpone to today. Tell us about what that was. Yes, you were very kind to, to let me shift plans. It was it turned out to be the day that, uh, well, we thought that the health care, that Trump care was coming to a vote, and I was helping some folks with um, some actions, a series of actions down in D.C. that day, um, including the most powerful part of the day was um, we um, brought about, gosh, I don't know, 100-some folks um, right into the House office buildings, um, into the Rayburn office building and the Longworth office building. And um, we paid, uh, we first paid a friendly visit to Paul Ryan's office, um, uh, the, the security was very, very nervous. I think they were worried that we were going to visit and not leave. But um, we came and we said our piece. Um, you're not allowed to protest inside those buildings, so you have to skirt right on the edge of it. Um, we use the Occupy practice of mm. the people's mic, where one person says something and everyone else repeats it as a way to amplify the sound. Ah, um, huh. And then we went uh, over to the office of... Um, the head of the uh, <clears throat> the House Appropriations Committee, um, Rodney Freelinghuisen, who's a, um, a member of Congress from 
from New Jersey and paid an even more raucous visit to his office. Um, and it was very satisfying the next day as the whole deal started to fall apart. The, the first real domino to tumble was Freelingheisen, who came out and said, no, he would not support um, Trump care. Um, you know, there had been um, all those very powerful town hall meetings all around the country, organized by Indivisible and other groups, um, where people had, had showed up um, at those town hall meetings in uh, in numbers and with energy that hadn't been yeah. seen in years. No, it's great. And this was bringing a similar kind of energy right into the Hoss office buildings, um, which, again, um, that idea of unnerving those in power, I think, is a very powerful one um, that, uh, you know, forced them to confront the people who were going to be losing health care if they had voted for that horrific plan, um, which, you know, fortunately went down in flames, and we can hope that any... Um, subsequently, you know, there's there's lots of talk now about them bringing it up for a vote again. We shall see what happens next. Well, perhaps one of the results from uh, that action and the resistance to it and the, you know, failure by its own ridiculous weight, maybe something actually better will happen. I mean, there's this senator from Vermont, you may have heard of, Bernie Sanders, who's putting forth uh, legislation to create Medicare for all. You know, I think more more people are aware of it now. And one of the aspects of our government, I believe, is that if the people are silent, the people in power believe we're acquiescing. It's okay. It's about making noise. Disruption is part of it. If you're not disrupting it, well, you must be okay with it. And you know that. I know that. It's, it's, uh, it's quite remarkable. And you mentioned the WTO protests in Seattle back in 1999. They, they remain somewhat controversial. Uh, for some of the participants, the point of direct action seemed to become just pulling off an impressive direct action, with direct action becoming not just a method of protest, but a political identity in itself, separate from any pragmatic or strategic considerations. Your comments on that, please. Yeah, that, that happens sometimes. I mean, there's, there's, this, uh, you know, there's this phenomenon called a movement high where yeah, um, you know, the exhilaration <laughs> that you can feel from being part of, of, a, of a truly vibrant grassroots movement. Yes. Um, and that's, that's real and that's important. Um, and that sense of um, really even euphoria that you can have yes, sometimes yes. From, from really acting collectively with others. Um, and there's also, you know, there is an adrenaline rush in taking part in some of these stronger forms of protest, in being part of a blockade, um, in being part of, um, of a, a roving march that shuts down the city streets. I mean, there's a, there's a, um, there can be a thrill in, in being part of that. It can feel very, very inspiring in the moment. Um, and my caution is about being aware of the moment and, being, and always having a sense, a larger strategic sense, of what you're really trying to accomplish. Right. Um, there's a way in which um, sometimes people, you know, after the Seattle WTO blockade, uh, which was such a powerful thing to be part of, there were all these efforts at kind of reproducing it again and again. Um, never quite as good, never quite as effective, but where people were trying to, like, recapture that feeling of what it had been to shut down a global trade summit, summit meeting. Um, and you can't, you know, you can't just replay the same tactics over and over again. Right. Um, <clears throat> if you do that... Um, you know, you're, 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 it's, it's really like spinning your wheels. Um, and so uh, I think because 
there can be that temptation sometimes to just reduce sure. them for their own sake. And that, that can be a problem. I mean, as we say, you know, politics is theater, and it can't be boring. It has to be interesting and hold the viewer's attention. I mean, I hate to reduce it to that, but that's a big, a big part of it. And it makes me think about there's this uh, stuff going around now, black block uh, anarchist so-called protesters who uh, in Berkeley, California, for example, smashed store windows and car windows. My sense is they were uh, agent provocateurs. Uh, uh, even Robert Reich thought they were uh, created by, by the right. And I'm sure they get that uh, adrenaline rush as well from doing some action, but it's incredibly counterproductive. If people are doing direct action these days on this, that, or the other issue, resisting Trump and defending uh, traditional American values, and they see some of these black block people with their, you know, all dressed in black and covering their faces, what, what would you suggest? And, and, and how does that fit into the discussion about direct action? Well, I mean, black blocs have been around for a very long time. They've been around since at least the 80s. Their roots are with the German Autonomen, um, the autonomous uh, movement, and uh, some of the anti-fascist movements in Germany. Um, and that energy um, and that kind of punk style has been been around for a long time. Um, and um, uh, black blocs don't always uh, engage in proper I've certainly seen black blocs in action that have used other tactics, um, but it is a tactic that they um, are, are often fond of. Um, it's one that I rarely consider strategic, um, <laughs> and um, but they're you know they're rarely dissuaded. Uh, in uh-huh. fact, not at all dissuaded by by right. people's criticisms of them, particularly yeah. by the criticisms of other people on the left. Um, mm-hmm. I find <clears throat> that that you you know. There have been some some very productive advances at large mobilizations um, with people having um, creating solidarity principles behind the scenes so that um, people agree to stay out of each other's way um, oh. so that you get a commitment if if um, folks who were were embracing nonviolent protests say they're not going to denounce other protesters. Um, folks who are doing something else agree to pick a different time and place for whatever they're doing. You know, usually the, the black bloc is very small. Um, usually the actions that they've done are very small, and they just look dramatic in a close frame. And, um, you know, I was in D.C. On, on Inauguration Day. I saw the windows that got smashed. It was like three windows. Mm. You know, it's kind of startling that there's, uh, what is it, 200 people now who are facing felony riot charges um, for those three little windows. Oh my. Um, so, you know, a lot of times uh, I think we can take the bait if we focus too much <laughs> on um, these actions of a, of a small number of people. It's, it's, rarely, um, it's rarely where the center of gravity of the protest is. Um, right. And um, the best way to convey that, that you don't think it's productive is to focus your energies on doing something that you think is productive and no. Strategy. Yeah, that's that's a good idea. That's that's very interesting. And it does certainly, I mean, that that very, very limited uh, sort of random violence enabled the other side, the Trump defenders to say, you know, to dismiss all the action is, uh, you know, it's that's what the action is. The protesters are not legitimate because this is what's going on. And, you know, again, being strategic. And I think your prescription there focusing on what you need to do and doing that and, you know, acting. And our movements 
have been overwhelmingly nonviolent. Oh. Overwhelmingly. Oh yeah. And it, certainly, if you contrast, you know, you were, you uh, you know the, the weather other ground, weather mm-hmm. underground came up before. I mean, it may be hard for Americans to remember, but <clears throat> you know, circa. 1969, 1970, 1971 in the United States, people were routinely setting off bombs as a as a form of political expression. Mm. Um, uh, you know, there was a there was a level of um, of flirtation with violence in street fighting. Yeah. Um, you know, ex- use, of, use of explosives. Um, you know, all of which is considered completely off the table now. I mean, when, when we when we have debates now about violence at protests, I mean, it's usually talking about somebody burning a flag or smashing a window. It's not about somebody hurting another human being, right? You know, yeah. we've we're so nonviolent that even the terms of what's being discussed as nonviolent is some pretty small scale penny ante vandalism, right? That's <laughs> true. Our our movements are not or are not hurting other people. Um, you know, on on the contrary, we are um, you know the folks who are standing up against um, a, a government that is armed to the teeth with the most deadly yes. arsenal ever seen, um, and which has shown um, you know uh, uh, all too much willingness to use it in context after context. Oh yeah, I mean, so many. You talk about violence. I believe it was Martin Luther King who called the uh, United States the world's biggest purveyor of violence, and it was true. Absolutely true. By the mid-1980s, groups that were mostly white began to include a focus on anti-racism as a regular part of direct action manuals and trainings. But you write, quote, there would be lasting consequences to the fact that the particular model of direct action used in so many large mobilizations came out of a cultural context that was at once so white and so lacking in self Awareness about that fact. I mean, I remember in the early days, end quote, of the uh, the anti-war movement, the SDS. Uh, frankly, it was almost entirely white. Women were typing and making coffee. You know, it had to change. What What about this understanding about you know white uh, leadership and and uh, you know as part of the anti-racism uh, model? Right. Well, it's where we're, there's still an enormous amount of work to be done. I don't want to overstate the progress that has been made um, because, um, you know, on the whole, movements of the left um, are still, uh, if anything, uh, perhaps maybe more uh, racially segregated than American society as a, as a whole. Um, and there's um, a, long, a long history of white activists um, placing themselves at the center and not um, following the leadership of movements of color and leaders of color. Um, but there have been, I think, some, some uh, these, these different moments. There was a big moment around the anti-apartheid movement in the, in the mid-late 80s. Um, there was another big moment after the Seattle WTO protest um, and another big model after Occupy. These moments when our movements have really tried to grapple more seriously with the racial divides and where um, white activists have um, tried to take responsibility for the ways in which uh, we end up inadvertently replicating white supremacy in our own movements that are supposedly movements for just social justice across the board. Um, you know, I think that part of that has been shifting away from the models of 
community that so much of the left um, have been enamored of over over the decades. Um, there's, you know, even when the left hasn't been in fact unified, the dream of left unity, which is which is kind of a dream of a party, right? A dream of a single left mm. political party, whether people say that or not. Interesting. Um, has turned out to, um, to 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 be really at odds with the reality of the ways in which our movements have evolved on the ground, which is um, that they are multiple and they are multi-vocal yes. and they have multiple leadership. Um, and um, that, uh, that structure of a kind of sprawling movement of movements, of a, of a landscape of networked resistance, um, which is what we have now, is one that allows and fosters um, the, the voice, leadership, and initiative of movements of color much more effectively than a kind of model of unity where we're all supposed to agree on one platform or one program or, or one leadership body. Um, <clears throat> none of those older models fit very well uh, with reality on the ground. And what we found is that for instance, um, like with the Dakota Access, uh, the Dakota um, Pipeline protests, um, you know, the leadership of Native groups um, in that entire mobilization meant that, for example, when, you know, white folks started going out to, um, to the Dakotas to show solidarity, but then it turned more into, like, Burning Man, you know, hippie hangout yeah. in the desert, huh. um, there, there were there were mechanisms of accountability where ah. the native leadership could could really um, call on um, folks to engage in a different, more respectful way and um, shift the terms of that political alliance. Yeah, well, that uh, struggle has been going on for quite some time in the early '60s with uh, uh, splits in the civil rights movement when you know a lot of black leaders. Uh, didn't like being led by white people and, and wanted some separation. You know, listening definitely is an important part. And I think it, it may be, I suppose it's both a weakness and a strength that with this direct action uh, protest movement of movements, as you say, is about is democracy, real, genuine democracy, uh, not top-down. That's a very different model, I suppose, than, than we're used to, and there is no single platform. But, you know, it's both a strength and a weakness. I, I happen to think it's more of a strength. Does it, does it change things overnight? Obviously not. But people feeling like they're part of something, that high that you talked about there, that, that uh, oftentimes once people get a taste of that, they want more, <laughs> you know, because it, it really is, uh, there's something very uh, fulfilling about it, feeling like you're actually doing something and participating in decision-making. Democracy, what a concept. Now, back in 2003, people protested Bush and Cheney's war on Iraq. There were You were the mobilizing coordinator for the massive protest in New York City. Thank you for that. The war went on, and surprising to many, including me, the mainstream media seemed to become just cheerleaders for the war. What was the point of the marching when we had so little or no hope of succeeding? Talk about that, if you would, please, that 2003 uh, experience. Yeah, that was quite something to be part of. Um, you know, the, the February 15th, 2003 um, day of protest, um, which I, I was the mobilizing coordinator for the, for the New York component of that, 
Um, it is the largest day of protest ever in world history. Um, and uh, it was pulled together in a, in a very short period of time. It was really... Um, it was really barely six weeks start to finish on uh, the time it took to put together that mobilization in uh, more than 750 cities all around the world on every single continent. And it was <clears throat> quite something to be part of such a massive mobilization that had such a minuscule effect. Yeah, yeah. I mean, George Bush shrugged off the millions of people in the streets as amounting to little more than a focus group, and didn't take our protests into account at all. It was an example of feeling incredibly powerless um, after we had what done what, what seemed like you know the heaviest lift in the book that we had managed to get so many people yeah, to stand me. together, unified, and say, no, the world says no to war. That was our, our, our slogan. Right. Um, and the world truly did. Um, you know that that experience. You know, uh, of course, we continued protesting even even once the war began, and and for years afterwards, um, all the, pro- the protests got smaller, um, and we knew that they were never um, having the effect we wanted. There are times when what you do, as much so you can look at yourself in the mirror in the morning, um, you know, sometimes you just have to stand in public and say no to something, even when it's not going to make a difference. Yeah. Merely to to be part of registering moral opposition to something that's deeply wrong, um, you know. I think we can look at our faith based um, activist traditions um, as sources of inspiration there, where there's a long True. tradition of people um, bearing witness, you know, yeah. taking a stand even if they know it's not necessarily going to be strategic um, to do so. That they're doing so for 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 other um, uh, kind of moral reasons. Um, but, you know, for me, it also got me thinking a lot about mass mobilizations and what they do and don't do, mm-hmm. um, and about um, how uh, really limited they are as pressure tactics. We tend to have this idea in our heads um, based on, a, you know, a simple story we tell ourselves about the 1963 March on Washington, that it kind of roused the conscience of the nation, a huge crowd assembled in Washington, D.C., and that, in turn, you know, led to civil rights legislation and to lasting change. And, and we, we think of a, of a mass mobilization as being a pressure tactic with an ultimate goal being institutional change. And it rarely, in fact, works that way. Hmm. Um, uh, mass mobilizations, whether it's the, the 2003 one against the, anti, uh, against the Iraq War, whether it's the Women's Marches this, this January, tend to work better from the perspective to, to function more effectively for movement building than they do as pressure on a target. Um, you know, certainly the, the Trump administration, I mean, he, Trump signed the global gag rule the day after, after millions of us marched on January 21st. He was not deterred at all. Um, when you look at it as um, a moment of political awakening, yes. you look at the Women's March from that lens, yes. it was a very powerful kickoff. To Tremendous success. Um, it wasn't a pressure tactic. But boy, was it a powerful movement-building tactic. And as the old saying goes, uh, think globally, act locally. People are acting yes. locally. That huge demonstration uh, rally 
it was was uh, full of life. It was full of enthusiasm. Everybody was smiling. And people bring that back and are indeed acting locally, whether going to their local congressperson, making noise, inspiration, making it happen, keeping it going. Hasn't always been easy here in these uh, United States. Uh, it's a very important uh, new book, Direct Action, Protest, and the Reinvention of American Radicalism. Our guest has been its author, L.A. Kaufman. Thanks so much. I don't know if there's any uh, website to which you can point listeners. Sure. Uh, my website is lakaufman.org. It's spelled K-A-U-F-F-M-A-N.org. And you can find the information there on how and where to, to um, order the book. You can find an excerpt from the book um, and also a list of my uh, public speaking engagements in the coming months. Ah. Well, thank you so much for being with us, and uh, let's keep the ball rolling. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's really been a pleasure. Likewise. You say you want a revolution. Well, you know, we all want to change the world. Tell me that it's evolution Well, you know We all want to change the world But when you talk about destruction Don't you know that you can count me out? Don't you know it's gonna be All right Got a real solution Well, you know We'd all love to see the plan You asked me for a contribution Well, you know We all do what we can But if you want money for people with minds that hate all I can tell you is, brother, you have to wait. All right. All right. All right. Chairman Mao You ain't gonna make it with anyone anyhow